Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, it's a privilege to be here today. Uh, as David said, my name is Adam Umbarger. I am not one of the pastors here. Uh, but I have the privilege of serving the campus of Lawrence and Bellin, uh, and I serve as a campus minister with InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. Uh, and so it's a privilege today to talk to you, but if you're interested to learn more about what it is I do on the college campus, uh, I'd love to talk with you after the service. Okay. Well, this semester we have been going through the book of Amos, and as we have seen it, it's been quite a challenging and hard-hitting book. And maybe it's not the kind of book that you would turn to for encouragement or to feel good. Uh, I actually love the book of Amos because it has shaped me profoundly in my ministry. I studied it a lot my first year on staff with university uh, at a spring break project in Milwaukee, and it continues to impact the way I do ministry today. Now, it can seem like a lot of bad news, doom, and gloom, but I have some good news for you today. Today's the last of the bad news. I know that may not sound like much. Um, maybe that's not what you're hoping for, but I suppose that's the best I can offer you since I was given verses 1 through 10. So while the book does end with hope and restoration, which we'll see in the next week, Amos does have some valuable things to say to us for us in our passage today. Well, in September of 1965, Barry McGuire reached number one on the Billboard charts with a hit song that began with these lines. The Eastern world, it is exploding. Violence flaring, bullets loading. You're old enough to kill, but not for voting. You don't believe in war, but what's that gun you're toting? Another verse goes like this. Yeah, my blood's so mad, feels like coagulating. I'm just sitting here contemplating. You can't twist the truth, it knows no regulation handful of senators don't pass legislation. And marches alone won't bring integration when human respect is disintegrating. This whole crazy world is just too frustrating. And it culminates with the last line of the chorus, ah, you don't believe we're on the eve of destruction. These words were written by P.F. Sloan, uh, are the lyrics to the song Eve of Destruction, one of the greatest protest songs uh, written in the 1960s. And it addresses things like the Vietnam War, Selma, Alabama, and the threat of nuclear destruction, among a few other issues. Now, while protest was part of the cultural milieu in the 1960s, maybe not surprisingly, a few bands passed on recording the song because it was just too hard of a message, too strong. It felt like it was just maybe too much or required a certain authenticity to be able to sing this song authentically. Well, this morning we're going to hear another doomsday message, one that probably didn't make it on any top charts in Israel but the one who's speaking it is worthy to deliver it because he is the Lord of hosts. Listen to the word of the Lord from Amos. I saw the Lord standing beside the altar and he said, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake and shatter them on the heads of all the people. And those who are left of them, I will kill with the sword. Not one of them shall flee away. Not one of them shall escape. If they dig into Sheol, from there my hand will take them. If they climb up to heaven, from there I will bring them down. If they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, from there I will search them out and take them. And if they hide from my sight at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent, and it shall bite them. And if they go into captivity before their enemies, there I will command the sword, and it shall kill them. And I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. The Lord God of hosts, he who touches the earth and it melts, and all who dwell in it mourn, and all of it rises like the Nile, and sinks again like the Nile of Egypt. 
who builds his upper chambers in the heavens and founds his vault upon the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out upon the surface of the earth. The Lord is his name. Are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord? Did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt, the Philistines from Kaphtor and the Syrians from Kir? Behold, the eyes of the Lord God are upon the sinful kingdom, and I will destroy it from the surface of the ground. Except that I will not utterly destroy the house of Jacob, declares the Lord. For behold, I will command and shake the house of Israel among the nations, as one shakes with a sieve, but no pebble shall fall to the earth. All the sinners of my people shall die by the sword, who say, disaster shall not overtake us or meet us. The word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, even when it is hard for us to hear. And I pray that you would open our hearts to your truth, that you would speak to us through your word this morning, and that you would use what I have to say for you and for your glory. Give us ears to hear. Amen. Well, before we get into this final word of judgment, I want to remind us a bit of where we've been in the book of Amos. Now, from the beginning, Amos has laid out an indictment against the nation of Israel. It started with oracles against the other nations, and that puts into perspective the grievousness of Israel's sin. And it's because of God's relationship with Israel that he is choosing to punish them. It's played out somewhat like a court case. We've had a summons to trial. We've had charges and witnesses. And the indictments against them are this, oppression of the marginalized, sexual immorality, ritualistic religion. Now the backdrop of what's happening in Israel at this time is quite a contrast to these charges. Things have been going well for Israel. It's a time of peace and prosperity, and even worship is thriving. But in fact, they sit at the eve of their own destruction. In roughly 30 years from Amos, they will cease to exist as a nation when Assyria comes back into the picture and brings destruction. Now, as we look at our passage today, one of my favorite things I do with my students is we study scripture inductively, observation, interpretation, application. And so I want to focus on a few observations first to help us see what's going on in the passage, things that I want to draw your attention to that stick out. So first, let's talk a little bit about some of the structure here. Amos 9 begins with the last of five visions that he has received from the Lord about Israel's coming judgment and destruction. The first four all begin like this. This is what the Lord God showed me. But now, we just have a pronouncement of judgment. The first two, Amos attempts to intercede on Israel's behalf. He pleads, O Lord God, please, how can Jacob stand? He is so small. And the Lord relents. But the next two, the Lord shows Amos what he is doing, and he's either unable or unwilling to advocate any further for them. I've often wondered why his intercession doesn't lend him some more credibility with the Israelites. He's pleading on their behalf. But Amaziah, the priest of Bethel, makes it clear that his message is not welcome here. So now in this last vision, Amos is merely an observer to the final word of judgment from the Lord. They may have been able to dismiss him out of hand before because, well, he's just a prophet from Judah. What do we care what he has to say? But now it's the Lord making it clear, completely clear, that this judgment is coming straight from him. So Amos is a prophetic book, and genre is important, so let's talk a little bit about that. Amos makes the use of a lot of poetry in his speeches here, and so here we're going to see, we see an example of a poetic device called a merism. A merism is a way to express totality by using two extremes. For example, in Psalm 91.5, you read, the psalmist writes, you will not fear the terror of the night, nor the arrow that flies by day. 
The psalmist is using night and day, two extremes, to communicate the constant protection of the Lord. In the first half of this passage, we see three of these. The first is, strike the capitals until the thresholds shake. If you don't know what capitals are, they are the decorative tops of columns. And if you're here with us in person, you can look around and you can actually see we have some capitals here on the tops of these columns. And so then the threshold is the base. So what he's saying here is the destruction is going to be complete. It's from top to bottom, destruction of the entire building. Now the other two merisms are part of this repetitive form he uses. If they, then, from there. So if they dig into Sheol or whether they climb up to heaven, from there God will bring them down or up. If they hide on the top of Carmel, Carmel is the, larger, the highest point in Israel, uh, covered with dense forest, or if they hide at the bottom of the sea, the Lord will find them. And so the point of these merisms is to illustrate the completeness of God's judgment. There is no escape from it. These two extremes, Sheol and heaven, Carmel and the bottom of the sea, illustrate that there is no place in all of creation where you can go to get away. God's judgment is complete. Now, if you remember earlier in Amos, we've also seen uh, some elements that scholars call a hymn. Here in verses 5 and 6, we see another example of, of a type of hymn describing the character of the Lord. It begins with a personal name for God, Yahweh. Anytime if you're reading the Old Testament, you see Lord in all caps. Uh, that is the personal name for God. Sometimes you might see it as Lord God, where God is capitalized. Depends on the translation you use for that. Now, if you're wondering what hosts refers to, he's called the Lord, of, Lord God of hosts. It's not referring to his amazing hospitality. Uh, it's actually referring to heavenly armies, signifying his power and might. In Amos 4.13 and 5.8-9, these other hymn fragments, they remind Israel that this is the God who created the heavens and the earth. He's not just some local deity. And now, when you combine it with 5 and 6, it shows that God is, as Paul Reddit writes, powerful enough to torch it as well, and ready to act with regards to Israel. These fragments may have drawn from hymns that Israel sang in worship to God, uh, are now actually being employed against them. Just a few minutes ago, we sang uh, these lines, like the water's roar is your voice, O Lord. I'm guessing most of us didn't sing that, thinking of the Lord's voice roaring against us right? So this hymn then breaks up Amos's message, and it comes back to this, uh, these two rhetorical questions. The first is, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. And the second is, did I not bring up Israel from the land of Egypt and the Philistines from Kaftor and the Syrians from Kir? Now, whenever we see rhetorical questions in scripture, it's important to recognize, okay, what's the expected answer? And here the answer is yes. Yes, the Cushites are like the people of Israel. Yes, the Lord brought Israel up out of Egypt, but also the Philistines and the Syrians from their places. Now, of course, Israel should remember that it was the Lord who brought them up out of Egypt, but he's also stating here that he brought up the Philistines and Syrians. And these aren't just two random nations he's talking about. These are Israel's enemies. But it's the first question, are you not like the Cushites to me, O people of Israel, that really stings? The Lord is saying, you are no different to me than these people. Now, the Cushites are people south of Egypt in what is modern Sudan. were considered to be living at the end of the world. Kaftor, which is also known as Crete, uh, is an island off to the east in the Mediterranean, or off to the west in the Mediterranean, and Kir is believed to be uh, northeast of Mesopotamia, the ancestral homeland of the Syrians. 
Now, the choice of these peoples makes it clear that God is talking about all people. His providential care extends to everyone, not just Israel. So the book of Amos is a wake-up call for Israel. They've been living in this delusion that because they are God's chosen people, that they are somehow better than everyone else. God only cares about them. And one day, the day of the Lord, all the other nations are going to know that too. But Israel's believed this lie, that because they are God's chosen people, they are somehow exempt from judgment. It's everyone else who's going to be made to give an account before God and will face a reckoning. But instead, Amos has brought them face to face with reality. Their status as God's people has not made them immune from judgment. In fact, it's the specific reason why they are being punished. Now, in these oracles against the other nations at the beginning of the book, it's, uh, the justification for their punishment is because of these obvious crimes against humanity. Even without divine revelation, they know that selling whole peoples into slavery, killing pregnant women to enlarge their borders, these things are wrong. But Israel, Israel had the law. They knew better. And that's what makes their sin all the worse. But isn't this quite harsh? I mean, in verse 4, we read that the Lord fixes his eyes on them for evil and not for good. Does the Lord commit evil? Well, the sense of this word, the Hebrew word here is lara'ah, which means for harm. That's the sense that we're given here. And it references actually the curses that come from Leviticus and Deuteronomy for not keeping God's law. So yeah, it's harsh, but it's warranted. What is our response to words of judgment? Do we see ourselves in the path of destruction? I think more often we see ourselves on the outside of judgment, exempt from it. It's everyone else who disagrees with us whom judgment is coming for. It's those who disagree with us theologically who will one day realize that we are right. It's for those who voted for the other candidate that someday they're going to realize they're wrong. It was my guy that you should have voted for. And it's for those who cheered for the brewers instead of the tigers that will realize their error. That's just me personally. But. The phrase we often hear, I hear this a lot these days, is being on the right side of history. It's this idea that at some point, our position, our views, our beliefs are going to be vindicated and our opponents will be the ones who are held accountable. Is this how we see judgment? Another way we might see things is that, well, by comparison, we're not as bad as the next person. God has bigger sins to worry about than mine. It's kind of like this story of two hikers who are walking along in the woods, and they come upon a bear. The bear looks hungry and ready to charge. And when one of the men reaches down to tie his shoe, his friend says to him, what, are you crazy? You can't outrun a bear. He replied, I don't have to. I just have to outrun you. Is this how we see judgment? Okay, sure, I've been furious and yelled at the guy who cut me off in traffic, but I hadn't murdered anyone, right? I may struggle with pornography, but it's not like I've committed adultery, right? Do we really think we can justify our sin because it's not as bad as someone else's? Or that maybe a little sin is okay as long as it's not one of the really bad ones? Now, in Amos, we do see a lot of specific accountability for leaders, and we like to place a lot of blame on their shoulders. But Amos 9 reminds us that there really is no one who escapes judgment. 
When the Assyrians come and attack, it's the whole nation that suffers, not just the leaders. Well, although Eve of Destruction was considered one of the greatest protest songs of its generation, Barry McGuire, the artist who recorded it, he said he doesn't really like it being labeled as a protest song. And in an article by John Cody, McGuire says, it wasn't a protest song, it was just a diagnostic. If you go to a doctor and he says, you have a melanoma here, it looks malignant, you don't call him a protest doctor. He's just diagnosing your condition. This is what Amos has been doing with Israel. The Lord has diagnosed their condition. They have mistreated the poor, they have tolerated sexual immorality, and they have made worship of the Lord into rituals of tithes and offerings as a way to manipulate him. Now they may look healthy on the outside with their prosperity and peace, but spiritually, inside, they are terminally ill. They haven't heeded the warnings, and so now here in Amos, we realize it's the end. There's many ways we can respond to messages of Amos and Barry McGuire, but there's two, two I want to think of, two potential pitfalls. The first is there's this idea that we, we could choose to ignore it or downplay it. This is what Amaziah does in chapter 7. He says, O seer, go, flee away to the land of Judah and eat bread there, prophesy there, but never again prophesy at Bethel, for it is the king's sanctuary and it is a temple of the kingdom. He tells Jeroboam, the king, that they, the people are not able to bear all of his word, Amos' words, meaning that the word against Israel is too harsh. His solution? It's just banish Amos. Go back and preach in Judah. Well, shortly after Eve of Destruction came out, there was a group called The Spokesman. feels a little on the nose. Um, they wrote a response song called The Dawn of Correction. And here's some of the, the words of that. You tell me that marches won't bring integration, but look what it's done for voter registration. Be thankful our country allows demonstrations. Instead of condemning, make some recommendations. I don't understand the cause of your aggravation. You mean to tell me, boy, it's not a better situation? John Madera, a member of the spokesman, said, well, we felt that the eve of destruction was a slap against America. So, you see, Barry McGuire, it's not so bad here. At least we allow demonstrations unlike those communist countries. The song goes on to sing, you missed all the good with your, in your evaluation. What about the things that deserve commendation? And this is a line that feels so true maybe today, but where there once was no cure, there's vaccination. The problem is that in each of these responses, they've made the wrong things sacred. As David uh, said a couple weeks ago when we studied chapter 7, it's interesting that Amaziah declares that it's the king's sanctuary Amos has offended, not the Lord's. Their worship is fundamentally flawed because they have prioritized their own kingdom, not the Lord. So to them, it's Israel. It's religion that they've, the way they've made it to be that's ultimately sacred. Not the law, not the word of the Lord, not the Lord himself. I think we do this today. To criticize America is unpatriotic, some would say. Have we made America untouchable and above all criticism? Is it not possible for America to be a great place that we love to live in, and yet that we struggle with fundamental problems like racism? Do we as Christians really think that our country has solved racism? This sin that has plagued us from slavery to Jim Crow to redlining to mass incarceration, it's just poof, gone. We fixed it, right? But it's not just our country we've made sacred and above reproach. 
We do this with the church. Martin Luther King said, it is appalling that the most segregated hour of Christian America is 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. Do we hear these critiques and dismiss them out of hand? Maybe because of where or who they come from? Amaziah did. I think we care more sometimes about being offended than of a call to repentance. But another pitfall is to hear these questions being asked, the critiques given, to agree with those, but to not hear the solution. At the time, there were those on the left who didn't like Eve of Destruction because of its lack of faith in marching and legislation. Now, while these things can be good and can bring about positive external changes, ultimately, they're unable to bring the kind of lasting transformation that's needed. We treat symptoms, but not the cause. Another way, too, though, is we can also ignore the solution when we get overwhelmed by the critiques and decide just to leave. This is what I'm seeing in the American church today. As I work on college campuses, I I have conversations with students who've walked away from their faith. They rightly recognize the brokenness, the hypocrisy that they've experienced in church, but some of them have just given up hope thinking it's irreparable. But what they fail to see is what the church is supposed to be, the body of Christ. And so they leave. Amos has already given us the path, though, to avoid these pitfalls. In chapter 5, the Lord says to the house of Israel, Seek me and live. Later on, he says, Seek good, not evil, that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you, as you have said. Amos is not, his solution is not just a different set of rules to follow. It's a call to repentance, to submission, a return to the Lord. But okay, Amos 9, it, there's so much destruction. What's the point for us, right? This is, this is all in the past. This is Israel. Don't we have Christ? Where's the grace? Where's the gospel? Well, it's easy to overlook hints of mercy in a passage like this, but God does say he will not utterly destroy them. Okay, great. So not total destruction. Cool. That's comforting, you might say. But I think the message of Amos is actually this. As the church, we are God's people. But our status as members of Christ's body does not exempt us from judgment, as though our actions have no consequences or impact on our worship. We, too, are held accountable. And so this passage reminds us that God's justice is perfect. No one can escape it. And I think we need to sit in that. If we jump too quickly to words of hope and grace, we miss out on how meaningful they truly are. We cheapen them, maybe even to a point where they, we don't even consider them all that significant, really. In Luke 7, Jesus illustrates this with a parable of two debtors. One owed a money lender 50 denarii, the other 10 times as much. When he forgives them both, Jesus asks the Pharisee at the table with him, Simon, who would love the money lender more? Of course, it's the one who had the greater debt, But Simon has to qualify that, saying, I suppose. Friends, do we see ourselves as being forgiven little? Do we think that our sins don't amount to much, that it's worth the trouble for God's judgment? Is that what we make our confession of sin? Just try to get through that so we can get to that assurance of pardon? But Jesus goes on to say this in this parable, as he explains it, about this sinful woman who has come to him. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. 
but he who is forgiven little loves little. I think in order to understand our passage today, we need to sit with the pronouncement of judgment and recognize the weight of our sin. Without that, we won't fully comprehend the good news that is to come, the hope that Amos 9, the rest of this chapter, looks forward to. We will be people who are forgiven little and consequently love little. So this Old Testament passage of judgment upon Israel is not just a lesson for us to avoid their mistakes, try not to be like Israel and the injustices they commit. It's for, ourselves to, it's for us to see ourselves in the place of judgment because we too are guilty. On our own, we have no hope. So we've seen throughout this book God's heart for justice, that it is essential, not secondary, to, work, to true worship. And so there's two questions I want to leave us with to reflect on. The first is this, what might it look like for us personally to reflect on the weight of our sin so that we might understand we have been forgiven much, that we might love much? Say that one again. What might it look like for us personally to reflect on the weight of our sin so that we might understand we have been forgiven much, that we might love much? The second question is, what might it look like for us as a body, as Emmaus Road, to sit in judgment? Now, this one I'll always give you an idea of that. Here it is. It's, it's the table. It is the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a way for us to sit in judgment and reflect on the weight of our sin. But thanks be to God that it is Christ who has given his body and shed his blood for us. And so let us not be those who say disaster shall not overtake or meet us. Let us remember that it is Christ, our Savior, who has taken the disaster the punishment for us, and he is not overtaken. When we take these elements, we identify ourselves with him. The Heidelberg Catechism says this, as surely as we see with our eyes the bread of the Lord broken for us and the cup given to us, so surely was his body offered for us and blood poured out for us on the cross. It is a sign and seal of the true reality. The Lord's Supper is a reminder of how our sin made Christ's sacrifice upon the cross necessary. But as we reflect on that, let it lead us to joy in the grace and mercy offered to us through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. 